Now, by, uh, by way of uh, sort of introduction, I want to just tell the tale of a well-known uh, Scottish company that have come up over the last 10 years. You will, you will have all, all heard of, uh, well, some of you will have heard of Brewdog. Now, I don't know if uh, beer is your thing to drink, but, uh, but over the last 10 years, uh, the UK has seen a boom, if you want to call it, in, in the beer industry. There's been lots of these trendy uh, new craft beers come up. And at the forefront of this, uh, revolution is Brewdog Scotland's very own Brewdog. They, and, but since 2007, they've now become a, a global company. They sell millions of uh, tins of beer a week. Uh, they started in 2007 in Fraserburgh. Just uh, two guys, uh, James Watt, Martin Dickey, and uh, they started via, they did a crowdfunding campaign. They managed to raise over £2 million. They ended up moving to, uh, to, to a bigger site in, in Ellen. And slowly but surely, after starting of so small, so little, just, a, just two guys starting up on their own sort of brewery, they become this global company. They've got offices all over the world in Australia. You might say humble uh, beginnings. But over the last 18 months, if you've kept an eye on the news, they've, come, they've been un coming under a bit of heat. Uh, in June of this year, uh, the company came under investigation for false advertising. If you recall the story, they, they advertised that they, that, um, they were going to hide uh, 15 cans around the world that were made of solid gold, um, only to find out that they were actually gold-plated, and so they're getting done for false advertising. Uh, in the same month, in June, there was an open letter signed by uh, anonymous employees that, that sort of it was published in the paper criticizing the firm's business and they openly stated that um, the business wasn't being run right, that, um, that one of the guys, I think it was James Watt, he was he turned in a bit of a dictator. Uh, there's a culture of fear. Uh, it was built on uh, this cult of personality and there was lots of people who worked for that that were complicit in this sort of manipulative um, sort of way of doing things. And he, this James, he was singled out as the one who was the, the orchestrator of the bullying and the intimidation. Uh, uh, and as the top dog, pun intended, uh, he's forgotten his humble beginnings. And what he's done is let, let success uh, go to his, to his own head. Now, the example that I've used there, I could have picked a whole number of examples where this has been the case over years, where people have had success and they let the success go to their head and think they're something, that they've become something. We understand why, when that happens, we understand why it happens, uh, because we want to be recognized for the achievement that we've done, and we think that we've deserved it by the skill, and, the, and we think that we, we, as the leader, we deserve that kind of... He thought he, he was the leader and deserved that kind of respect. This is what we've seen in Gideon's life. It's what we saw a little bit of uh, last week. Uh, and all the way through, we've drawn this, this sort of idea that Gideon had the humble beginnings of a nobody, uh, but on being tempted, enticed by his own desires, we saw last week he responded with fear, uh, with pride, and with bitterness. Uh, how he used to think he was a nobody, but now he thinks he's a somebody. He used to think he was a nobody, but now he thinks he's a somebody. This is the root issue uh, in his heart. And we saw that how that was manifested last week with the way he treated his own people and how he used that to sort of elevate his position even further. 
But what we see uh, this week is he takes it even a step further than what we could imagine. He takes it even a, a step further than what we could imagine. And so we're going to look at this sort of last stage uh, in his life uh, this week. Now just, I've done this every week, it's just to remind you, just in case you haven't uh, been here as we've been looking at this in Judges, just how Judges, just a quick reminder how Judges is structured, it's these repeated cycles of God's people. Firstly, they, 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 um, they go against the Lord, and then they, so the Lord sends a, a foreign power to conquer them. Third step, they cry out to the Lord. Fourth step, uh, the Lord sends a deliverer. This is Gideon that we look at. He sends a deliverer to, to deliver them from this foreign uh, power. And then the fifth step, which we normally see, is that the land has rest uh, from the foreign power. They have peace once the foreign power is conquered by the deliverer. So that's kind of the structure of it. And we're towards the very end of that cycle. It's so just a reminder, if you've not been here, that's kind of where, where we're at looking at Gideon. So we're going to look at uh, in sort of three in three sort of headings. We're going to look at success is dangerous. We're going to look at be discerning of who you follow. And then at the end, we're just going to spend a little bit of time as we've come to the end of this, just thinking about maybe Gideon's legacy, uh, his legacy in, in the bad legacy that he leaves and the good legacy um, that he leaves as well. So firstly, we're going to think about su- success being dangerous. Success is a dangerous place uh, for Gideon, it turns out, and actually not just for him, but for, the, but, for the, but for the people of Israel as well. They look at what's been achieved, uh, and they think themselves that, that Gideon, he's a force to be reckoned with, right? This aggressive, brutal figure, what Gideon's become, he's the kind of, kind of man they want. He's the kind of leader uh, that, that they're after. Just look with how they respond to him again in verse 22. Then the men of Israel uh, said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Gideon. Rule over us, they say. And notice they don't just want Gideon. They don't just want Gideon to be king. Actually, they say, your son and your grandson also. They're, they're asking for a dynasty here. They want a dynasty to be established. They want Gideon's family line to remain in power. And when somebody is asking for a dynasty, we know what that means, right? It means that what they're really saying to Gideon is, Gideon, we want you to lead us. We want you to be our king. That's what they're saying when they say that to Gideon. And the reason they want Gideon, you look back, the reason they want Gideon, rule over us for, the reason why, for you have saved us. You, Gideon, have saved us. The Lord is not in the picture here. He's not in their minds. For you, Gideon, have saved us. Like we reminded of last week, the Lord was right, wasn't he? In chapter 7, verse 2, remember, lest Israel should boast. That's why he chose 300 men in the first place. But here, the glory due to the Lord, it's given to Gideon. You have saved us. And at first glance, when we read through that passage, when we read through what happens next, it seems like Gideon's, Gideon responds back to them in a, in a sort of godly way. Verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. When we read that, we think, well, Gideon, he knows, what's, he knows the right way to respond. He knows that the Lord's in charge. He doesn't want the king. He doesn't want a dynasty. He knows the right way to respond. 
But what we see is that his actions betray what comes out of his mouth. His actions betray him. Everything that follows uh, the Gideon does actually indicate that he, what, what he really wants is, he, what, he doesn't want to say he's the king, but he wants to be treated as one. He thinks he deserves it because the success has gone to his head. Just look what he, he does. Verse 24, um, he follows it by, by saying, yeah, I, no, I don't want you to rule over me, but instead, almost like an instead, instead do this. Verse 24, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. When he asks for this amount of gold what he receives. He's not asking for a, a favor. He's not asking him to do him a favor, or instead of making me king, can you just give me all this gold? This is an offering for the victor. 1,700 shekels. That is a, that's a ridiculous amount of gold. It's in today's, if, if we're weighing it out today, that would be 42 pounds uh, in weight, and in today's money, uh, that's uh, around the region of 800,000 pounds worth of gold. This is a treasure chest fit for a king. Make no mistake about that. And that's not all. Uh, the crescent ornaments, the pendants, purple garments, they're all symbols of royalty. These are the things he wants to keep from the spoil. He wants to keep, the, he wants to keep all the stuff that implies that he's actually, he wants to be a king. There's also other suggestions that come throughout the passage. We read in verse 30, um, there's this suggestion, the amount of sons, 70 sons, if we look in sort of this Canaanite mythology, it's that the, the, the Canaanite god El and his goddess Asherah have 70 sons. And to cap it all off, and this one takes the biscuit, he calls one of his sons Abimelech. In Hebrew, literally means, my father is king. His actions betray him. He, really, he wants to be treated as king. Now, we're going to look at what he uh, does with the gold uh, in, in sort of the next uh, point. But I just wanted to pause here for a moment and look at what's happened to Gideon. I keep mentioning that phrase. He's gone from a nobody to thinking he's a somebody. And he's, his actions, he's ensured that the people think that about him as well. The high point of his life was 715, where he fell to his knees and worshipped the Lord. Now... This is where he's at. He's asking them to offer something to him. A few weeks ago, we looked at how the Lord tested Gideon. And in some ways, you might say that the biggest test, it wasn't where do you go when you feel like a nobody, but where do you go after you've had success? That is a much bigger test. What happens when the Lord works through his people and brings success, brings victory? Well, it's gone to Gideon says he thinks he's made it. You just think back to the, uh, the illustration of uh, Brewdog, the reason for, for all the issues. Uh, they've, forgotten where they, they've forgotten where they came from, that they actually came from a crowdfunded uh, sort of pursuit where they needed to, he needed to raise the money to get them off the ground. They needed people. Brewdog forgot all that. 
success went to their head. Perhaps that's the time when we're actually in real spiritual danger. When we've had great success. And maybe, for some of us, we know to turn to the Lord when it's difficult. When we're needy, when the need's obvious, or maybe when, uh, when things are going uh, great in our life or in ministry, you think, uh, when you're successful in a job application or you've just bought a new car, a, a job promotion, or even you're away on holiday, our needs are not that obvious. And it's especially true when the Lord works through us to do great things. When we're serving God's people or you witness to a friend, you've had a great time of prayer, you think, you know, oh, I've made it. I've made it. Our guard is down and perhaps we feel a little bit puffed up. We're puffed up. We're off our guard. And I just, I just want to be honest with you that church leaders, we're, we're not immune from this either. At the, end of, at the end of a Sunday, perhaps, you know, church has gone well. There's been a few encouragements. This is, this is the time when spiritually leaders are a bit of a target because our guards down, you might start to puff, get puffed up, think, oh, look what the Lord did through me today. Just as a, an aside, it is a, it is, a, is it a reason to just to think we must pray for our ministers and elders and, and each other, actually, not just in apparent need, because maybe, actually, the, like I've said, the real danger happens when we don't actually realize it. It looks like things are going well, but it's the success that is causing the sin to manifest. So yes, success goes to their head. Success goes to his head, and success uh, can go to our head. We need to be watchful of when that happens. But what Gideon does next? It's fair. Um, I think it's good fair to say it's not really in the playbook of a deliverer. Um, as we're gonna, we're just gonna look at our second point. Um, be discerning of who you follow. Gideon's success, it, it, take, it takes him here to a whole new level of um, what you expect from him. Last week, we, it was quite a heavy week last week, and we looked at the, the horrific acts, you might say, uh, that Gideon did. Um, we saw the way that he um, tortured his own people. And on, on, the, on, the, on the surface of things, those things... Um, they can seem to us the things that are more shocking, can't they? The torture, um, the revenge. Um, I mean, it, it, it turns the narrative, really, doesn't it, from a 12 rate into maybe, maybe an 18 when we, when we read that stuff. What happens next? On, initially, it doesn't, it doesn't look as bad as those things. But I don't want us to be deceived by that because actually what he does is it's actually worse, what Gideon does with the gold. Now, just look at verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it. That's, that's the gold. He makes an ephod with the gold. And he put it in his city, in Ophrah. Now, uh, an ephod, um, if you're looking at sort of the Bible, there's a, there's a, there's a few references. One, one from the Bible that I want us to th think about, and one from sort of other ancient literature that comes around. So it could be one of two, two options. We're not actually told um, in this passage so an ephod is it's a garment worn by Levitical priests uh, when they were serving in the sacrificial system. Uh, but notice Gideon, um, 
I think there's, there's a couple of reasons for saying that, that it's probably not that. One, one, there's only one made, and it's made out of 42 pounds worth of gold, so it's pretty heavy. Uh, but also, in, in the ancient literature from around the time, um, an ephod was sometimes a garment that was draped over um, as clothing over a god. And in those cultures, if you had part of the regalia, um, then that sort of represented the whole thing. In other words, the, the ephod represented the god of which it would cover. Um, now, in our account, like I say, we're not told uh, other details about this gold. So we have those two, it, two op- the two options are either Gideon has moved sort of the priestly service away from where it should be to the new, what he's de- destined as the new capital city, Ophra, which in itself that would have been wrong. Or I think more likely, and perhaps worse, that this is Gideon reconstructing worship of a false god. Of a Baal. Baal just means Lord. So he's actually reconstructing. He's going back. You remember that was the problem with which we all started with back in chapter 6, that Joash's dad was doing Baal worship in his back garden. And I think even more so the way that this comes true, this, this sort of is, comes into our thinking is, if think for the purposeful link of when the Lord clothed Gideon, do you remember uh, chapter 6, verse 34? It says, Gideon was clothed with the Spirit of the Lord. Now Gideon creates his own image, clothed in something of his own making, with Ophrah, the capital. It ties in with the kingly, thing, kingly sort of image that's going on. When the Lord was king, worship was done right, in the right place. Now Gideon acts like king, and worship is done wrong, and in the wrong place. Not only is he acting as king, but a bad one. It's all gone wrong, hasn't it? It's all gone wrong. It, idolatry is now state-sponsored. Gideon's doing what is right in his own eyes. This is not the day of the Lord, but the day of Gideon. And of course, it evokes memories of when the law was given. At the bottom of Mount Sinai, rings of gold were given to Aaron to make a golden calf. Now we have rings of gold given towards making an ephod. Moses hated it and went ballistic. Gideon has proposed and done it. Verse 27, and all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. The narrator sees it in a very different light. It is a, it is a snare. It traps them. Just think back, back, I just want to go back to the illustration of thinking about Brewdog. When, 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 when problems start to surface in a company or in an institution, uh, there's often a sort of three responses. You get those who are complicit in the issue, in the manipulation, and um, in doing that, they sort of encourage it. They don't think that there's a problem. There's those who see the problem but want to keep their head down because they don't want to you know, put their head above the parapet. And there's those who do put their head uh, and, uh, above the parapet and they're going to sort of be a target. But with, with Israel, it just seems like they're, they're not really that discerning. They're enraptured with Gideon. They're enraptured with him. And they follow his lead. What he does is, is worse because he's not leading them towards the Lord, but away from him. He's not leading them towards the Lord, but away from him. 
And I just wonder, how do we um, evaluate the people we follow in our own lives? How do we evaluate the people that we follow? Do we, can we, sometimes unknowingly, allow ourselves to be led by the wrong type of people? Because you think Twitter, Instagram, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Following people. And I don't want to be heavy-handed about internet use and things like that. It's, we know it's a, used for brilliant, lots of things, brilliant things. But the people that we follow on those platforms, we can't help be influenced by their views, by what they're trying to sell. And it is worth evaluating that, the influence they have in our daily lives. Are they leading you towards God or away from Him? But this is, it's not just for the world out there, is it? Because it's also relevant for the, for the church leaders that we follow as well. Just like I said with these platforms, we live in an amazing time uh, where you can listen to Bible teaching from all over the world. I, I, I regularly sort of listen to Alistair Begg and read different blogs there. And it's been an immense blessing uh, to, to me. And maybe uh, we do that, but we do have to be careful, don't we? We do have to have a level of discernment. And I think some, there is some things that maybe alarm bells should ring. I just take, for, this is not, a, gen, this is not a, a universal rule, but I always, alarm bells ring when a, when a ministry always calls themselves after the person. Now, there's exceptions to that, but I think, what's going on there? Or where a, or where a Bible is called after, the, after a person. It's, it's almost to be, doesn't mean that it's not useful and helpful, but to be wary of, of things that are drawing things towards a personality rather than towards the living God. Who are they promoting? It doesn't end in a good place for Gideon. It doesn't end in a good place for Gideon. He started as a nobody, he's become a somebody, and he's led people away from the Lord. If you look at the track of his life, the first thing that he, after being called by the Lord, the, th the first thing the Lord called him to do was to lead his people away from idolatry. And he did that. And then he was used by the Lord to gain a great victory over oppression. And it seems like everything's just been turned on its head. Again. It doesn't end in a good place for Gideon. But I want to spend a, a few minutes just to what, as we sort of wrap up this series, just looking at... Um, Perhaps his legacy, his immediate legacy is about what happens after he dies and then his legacy to, to us. And whenever you think about things like this, there is a, there is, is a, there is a few things that you could touch upon uh, thinking about that, definitely probably more than we've got uh, time for. So I just want to think of two, one, one bad and one good. And so the bad legacy um, is the consequences of his sin. The consequences of his sin. And it's actually quite... A, a, sort of striking that despite what he's done um, in leading Israel back to Baal, that they actually, the Lord sort of honors the promise, doesn't he, that they have peace in Israel for 40 years, and he has answered the cries that Israel, that the Israel had to him in chapter 6, verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon, despite his actions, um, Gideon somehow prevents their complete spiritual uh, demise. But following his death, 
um, it's, it, it's a different story. Uh, verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baalbarith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he'd done to Israel. It's complete spiritual decline. And notice now, it's not just Baal, but Baal Barith. As I mentioned, Baal means Lord or Master, and Barith means Covenant. This is Baal of the Covenant, not the Lord. It is a step worse. It's a step worse than when he was alive, worse than their previous harlotry, they're in a worse position. They're like, it's like a dog returning to its own vomit. Uh, they're in a worse place. And how have they ended up here? Why do the shackles come off after he dies? Now, I'm going to come to these verses in a, in a little bit, and we know from Hebrews 11 that Gideon is in a, a chapter of the Bible known as the, sort of the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith. And he's mentioned among the likes of Abraham and Moses. Um, so it's right to assume that Gideon, um, he repented in his life and had faith in the Lord's promises for his own eternal future. We can be confident of that because of what the New Testament says about him, that he's a forgiven sinner. Yet, if you think, if you throw a pebble into a pond and it falls to the bottom, you can reach into the pond and retrieve it but you can't stop the ripples. If you throw a pebble into a pond, it falls to the bottom. You can reach into the pond and retrieve it, but you can't stop the ripples. You can be forgiven of your sin, but you can't stop the consequences. He's laid out the red carpet for what follows after his death. And I mean, just look at the example he set for his 70 sons. It's not really a surprise of what Abimelech turns out to be. The guy called my father his kin, king makes himself king and goes on a violent rampage. He's like father, like son. And it's a good point for us to remember that we're forgiven of our sins, but the consequences, the ripples, they don't go away. Israel goes from bad to worse, and you remember before I, I was talking about um, the structure of judges and step five was rest in the land. Well, this rest in the land, this 40 years, it's the last time it happens. There's no more rest in the land for Israel. And I just hope in some ways, as I've met this sort of bad legacy that, that comes after his death, I just hope that it serves as a deterrent in some ways um, from sin. We have an amazing, gracious, compassionate saviour who forgives us, who wipes our slate clean. Of course, that's the case. But you, if we take anger for an, exam, for an example, you think of when you give in to anger, you lose your rag, you say that thing that you, that you regret. Once you've said it, you can't sort of unsay it. You can't take it back. Of course you're forgiven, but the relationship you have with that person, you can't, it still hurts. You can't take it back. It doesn't mean you can't erase the hurt with the person stood in front of you. It takes time. The ripples carry on. You can take, you can be forgiven. You can, that pebble can be taken out, but the ripples continue. So that's the bad side of the legacy. But what about the good? Well, I hinted at a moment ago that Gideon is part of God's people. And the reason we know that is because of the passage I mentioned, Hebrews 11. 
And it might come as a bit of a surprise after the way it finishes for him. Hebrews, Hebrews 11, the bit that I'm talking about, it says, And what more shall I say, for time will fail to tell, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to, to flight. It's through faith. The Lord uses people to do great things. And what we mustn't do is think that it's what Gideon achieved has made him part of God's people. Um, we can't say that about other people in the Bible. Remember, um, Judas did miracles and presumably people came to faith uh, from his ministry, but it didn't end well for him. No, it's not about what Gideon did, but that whole chapter in Hebrews, it's about faith. It's about his faith. Through faith, kingdoms were conquered. Gideon was a man of faith in the living God, in the Lord's victory. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. His legacy to the church, to the body of Christ, is the demonstration of his faith that comes earlier in his life, his weak faith in the Lord's promise of victory. That is the promise to us, that all our good works, God does prepare for us beforehand that we're going to walk in them, but the undeserved kindness of God is to save you through a gift, a free gift, the gift of faith. That gift of faith, it consists of the knowledge of what the promise is, the promise of eternal life granted through God giving his son, but faith is trusting in that promise for yourself. It's attributing that work on the cross as totally sufficient to grant you entry into the kingdom of God so that when we stand before him, we'll know we're accepted. That any shame, the guilt, we've mentioned the things before, the fear, the pride, the bitterness, even perhaps leading people away from God is not too big a sin for you to be forgiven of. Do you remember what Jesus says to, in, I can't remember where it is just now, but he says, whoever leads one of those children away, it'd be better that a, mil a millstone was going to be around his neck. Well, Jesus takes Gideon's millstone Any shame or things that we've done in the past are forgotten, cast to the bottom of the sea. That is the promise of the gospel, and it is received by faith. We trust that it is sufficient for us. And so as we come in for landing, we looked at what success does to Gideon. It puffs him up, and nobody to us, somebody. He acts like a king. It's gone to his head. He leads his people back to idolatry, back to a worse place than where, he, where they started. But I just want to finish with two further encouragements. It's a reminder, isn't it, to all of us that as we look at Gideon, he's a flawed sinner. 
as I've said, he has faith and God uses him. And that's what we are. We're flawed sinners, but we have faith in a big God. Despite our background, despite anything we've done or will do, there is no sin too big for the Lord to forgive. And in some ways, if we don't feel like we deserve a place in the Lord's kingdom, that's right. The truth is that none of us do. That's what grace is. Sinners in need of mercy and grace. And God has that in an abundance for each of us. But the final encouragement actually comes from, goes back to the, the book of Hebrews. The, one of the big overarching themes in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Chapters 1 and 2, we've got he's better than the angels. Chapter 3, he's better than Moses. Chapters 4 through 10, he's better than the high priest. He's better than the sacrificial system. He's a better sacrifice. He's, he's the guarantor of a new covenant. Then we get to this chapter, the hall of faith. The first words that come after in chapter 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those witnesses are the guy, the hall, those in the hall of faith. Since we're surrounded by them, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. After all these guys, it points to Jesus. The point, Jesus, he's, he's, he's not just better than the angels, Moses, every, all the sacrificial system, he's better than all these heroes of the Old Testament as well. If God can accomplish these amazing things through flawed sinners, imagine what he can accomplish, imagine what God can accomplish through a genuine covenant keeper. No sin in his mouth. That's the leader we have. The true deliverer, the true judge, the good shepherd, the real king. Sat down at the right hand of God where there is true peace in the land. Promise that will not just last for 40 years, but will last for eternity. And his legacy a kingdom, and a people of a kingdom who will be like father, like son. Not like dogs returning to their vomit, but children, each of us, that will inherit a kingdom. We are the legacy. Jesus' legacy is his church. Let me pray. Father, we once again thank you for your word and we praise you for, your, for, the, for the way that you've spoken to us and we praise you for the Lord Jesus and we thank you that he is better by far, that we have a wonderful saviour a wonderful leader, a wonderful king, a shepherd, a judge, a deliverer. You're, you're the mighty one, 
and you reign and you rule. And your kingdom will never end or never perish or spoil or fade or your promises will always remain. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you that for the church, we thank you that, that we see as we look around and see each one of us that that is your great legacy and, and we praise you. And we ask that you'd help us, Lord. Help us to follow you. Help us to, um, to remain, to be faithful ourselves and to follow you. Lord, to know what it means to live as followers of Christ. As we pray that you'd bless us with this word and as we go out into the week that we'd live and work for your praise and glory. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.